Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week we are going to Bristol um, and it is going to be Bristol at Christmas time a few years back actually. Uh, So this week I'm going to be telling you the case of Joanna Yates. Before I ask you the usual, Sam, this is obviously set at Christmas time, so this is our Christmas special. I say it like it's going to be anything different. It's not. It's a very a story told by one of us. Um, but this is going to be our last episode of the year, um, and we are going Aww. to take. I know, sad. So we're going to take a two year a two year break. Yeah, we're going to take a two week break to just have some time with our families and just kind of have a bit of a rest so this is our kind of finale of 2023 thank you for listening to us if this is your first time or you've been with us the whole year the whole three or years. last time <laughs> last time yeah if this is you thinking i've actually had quite had enough that's okay too um so yeah it's been a fab year like um we had our spotify wrapped and we still can't believe there's so many of you that listen to us especially when it's ones that listen to every case so I thank you very much um, and I hope you have a lovely festive time or just a time in general, whatever you do with you, your loved ones or yourself. But yeah, Samantha, anything you'd like to say? No, just thank you very much um, and take this time to just rest. Even if you don't celebrate Christmas and New Year, etc. Just yeah, take exactly. this time and, and yeah, thank you for listening. It is really appreciated. So thank you. Fabulous. So, Samantha, does Joanna Yates, does that ring a bell to you at all? None whatsoever. Let's end this year as we go on. <laughs> yeah, imagine the last case I do and you're like, yes, finally. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to tell you the story of Joanna Yates. As I said, it is set around Christmas time. And when I say Christmas time, as the story goes on, you'll see how close I mean to Christmas time. So Joanna Claire Yates was born on the 19th of April 1985 to parents David and Tessa. She was born in Hampshire, England, which is kind of a rural part of the county, really. She was privately educated. She went to Embley Park, which is kind of near Romsey. And she studied for her A-level. She did art, geography and biology. And she went to Peter Simmons College. And she actually graduated with a degree in landscape architecture um, from a university, a Rittle University College, which is in Essex. She then went on to do a postgrad, so she did her postgraduate diploma in landscape architecture from the University of Gloucestershire. Here we go, Gloucestershire. I can never pronounce that. Gloucester, Gloucestershire. Shut up. Yeah, it's oh. right next to Greenwich. That's no, not <laughs> but Gloucester. Yes, there. Um, I think. Yeah, fair. Um, just a side note, we don't, we're very lucky that all of our comments and feedback are actually like 90% positive, but the ones that we do get that are negative is because we can't pronounce words, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I must have done it on the last episode. <laughs> yeah, we've got people that are like, I hate their accents, I hate their way of speaking, and I hate how they can't pronounce words, and I'm like, fair enough. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't blame them, but also, I'm very sorry if we, we're not going to change, so... <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm sorry. I still can't speak. I don't, I don't speak well in my normal day-to-day life. No. So, yeah. So, as you can tell, she was a very bright girl. And I don't know if you've gathered from all that studying, but she was an architect. 
she went on to do a master's in garden design at Bristol University. She loved to study. By the sounds of it, she absolutely loved to study. In December 2008, she met 25-year-old architect Greg Reardon. And they met at a firm, Highland Edgar Driver, which was in Winchester. Now, the couple moved in together in 2009 and they decided to settle in Bristol when their company, Highland Edgar Driver, moved to Bristol. So they kind of took them to the city. So Bristol is a city in the southwest of England. It's got about 500,000 population. I have never been to Bristol. I don't know if you've been, Sam, but a lot of people have a lot of good things to say about Bristol. Um, so I don't know if you've been at all. I I have not been. I don't think I've been. But I also think there's like the biggest world buffet in the UK in Bristol. I could, it could, yeah, could be that or Birmingham. But I think it's Bristol. It's something that begins with well, anyway. Off we go. Exactly. I'll process. send you a link. I'll send you a link. But anyway, no. Short, long story short, I have never been to Bristol. Well, we should go. So <laughs> Johanna later changed jobs and she moved to work at the Building Design Partnership, which was still in Bristol. Now, she was popular with both friends and clients and seemed to just be a lovely girl at work. The couple moved to a flat at 44 Cannon J Road and this was quite a large house that had then been subdivided into like different flats and this was in the kind of city's Clifton suburb, uh, suburb sorry, and they moved at the end of 2010, it was about the October time. The couple were known to just be like so loved up, they just absolutely loved each other, they were just genuinely nice people, they loved the outdoors, they'd done a lot of sports, they'd done cycling, climbing, she recently joined a rowing club, she was like really into sport and activity, quite like you Sam, um, and they just both had that kind of mutual connection with doing things like that. So, can I, can I, sorry, I didn't catch that right away, but I mean, were you being sarcastic there, like me? Yeah. Of course, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, was how many like, rowing clubs are you up. in? Uh, none, <laughs> right? Just making sure. Sorry, excellent. Took so a while. They also had a cat called Bernard, big fan, big fan of the cat called Bernard. Now, our story starts kind of the timeline starts on Friday, the 17th of December. So, about 5 pm that night, Greg actually goes home to visit his family. Now, he is originally from Sheffield and he goes to visit his family and friends, and Joanna stays at home, which I get she, I think, was going out with colleagues, just taking some time to herself before the kind of mentalness of Christmas. I actually don't know what she was doing for Christmas Day. I'm not going to make that up. I don't know if her parents were coming. I don't know if her and Greg were going to visit her parents. I generally don't know. So Joanna went out with colleagues at the Bristol Ram pub, which is on Park Street, and they, she left about 8pm and began the 30 minute walk home. Now, she told her friends and colleagues actually that she wasn't looking forward to spending the weekend alone as this was her first in the flat without Greg. So she said she was going to bake, um, get like ready, the party were, um, the couple sorry, were throwing a party the following week. So she was going to do some shopping for Christmas, kind of just getting on with things. So she went to Waitrose on her walk home and she didn't buy anything. She then phoned her best friend, a girl called Rebecca Scott, at about half past eight and they arranged to meet on Christmas Eve and have a kind of catch up. The last known footage of Joanna was recorded of her buying a pizza from Tesco Express and this was around 8.40pm. She then went into a nearby off licence which was called Bargain Booze and she bought two small bottles of cider. 
So that weekend, Greg had been trying to contact her, but he didn't hear anything back. He contacted her by text mainly. Now, this isn't really uncommon for them to like not text. They weren't really big phone people. However, I think Greg didn't really panic at this. I think if he was texting Joanna and being like urgent and he speaking to you and she wasn't getting back. But I think it was probably casual texts here and there. He knows she was going to do Christmas shopping, meet some friends. So he wasn't really overly concerned. So on the 19th of December, at approximately 8pm, Greg returns home and Joanna wasn't in the flat. So he was like, right, okay, she must be out with friends. That's fine, no problem. So he is kind of unpacking, getting ready. So he thinks he'll give her a call just to see where she's at. But then her mobile phone rings from the pocket of her coat, which was still in the flat. When he found the phone, he also then found her purse and keys that were also in the flat. So that's when he realised, okay, like, She's left her phone, purse and keys in the flat, which is so unlike her. He also realised that Bernard had no food out and looked like he hadn't really eaten. He looked a bit mal, like malnourished, really, which cats, if anyone has a cat or knows of a cat, they pretend they are starved all the time. But he was like, no, this cat generally doesn't seem to have had its food. So about shortly after, about midnight, half past 12, Greg contacts the police and Joanna's parents to report her missing. Now, I believe he contacted her parents first and said, look, is she with you? They were like, no, he explained. And they were like, yeah, get the police involved. Now, the couple's mutual friends set up a website and used social network services to look for her. And Joanna's parents immediately came to Bristol. On the 21st of December 2010, Joanna's parents and Greg made a public appeal for her safe return at the police press conference. And uh, they kind of just did, you know, the usual, like, this is really unlike her. We're really worried about her. If anyone's seen her or Joanna, if you are out there, could you please just make us aware that you're safe? Joanna had no reason to run away. So if she was like, actually, I'm running away. I don't want to be with Greg anymore, for example. Or I don't want to work my job. She hasn't taken her phone or keys or anything. But also, like, as I'm saying, she was really loved up with Greg. She didn't give any inclination to anybody on that night at the pub that she was planning on doing anything like that. So that's kind of ruled out quite quick. There was another press conference that was actually broadcast on live TV on the 23rd of December by Sky News and BBC News. Now, her dad, David Yates, said, quote, I think she was abducted after getting home to her flat. I have no idea of the circumstances of the abduction because of what was left behind. I feel sure she would have not gone out by herself, leaving all of these things behind and she was taken away somewhere. Which is horrific. Like, that's such a horrible thing to actually, as a dad, be like, I believe somebody's got her. Um, And I've already kind of touched on the fact that her phone and keys were left, but the detectives found no sign of the pizza she had bought, nor its packaging. And the both bottles of cider were found, and one of them was partially consumed, but the other one hadn't been opened or touched. There was also no evidence of forced entry or a struggle um, so that's when they then start thinking, OK, if she was abducted, there is a possibility that Joanna might have known her abductor, which is horrific. So actually, it's somebody that she's allowingly let in the flat that has then abducted her or, do- or done something to her, which I think is quite common in it. Like, I think it's more likely that, you know, someone that's going to abduct you. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and also, I guess it's probably easier, it's like, if you're in a flat, to just let someone in. Like, I've now got yeah. a buzzer at the front door, but I mean, like, half the time you're like, it'll probably just be a delivery. Here you go, come on up, open my door. Like, you know, it's yeah one of those things. But yeah, awful. like, I don't know if she had a peephole or anything. Yeah. So it no could idea. be one of those if, like, 
do you know if she's expecting somebody or if she's thought it's maybe just somebody yeah like I don't have a peephole I've got obviously you know how my doors have have windows but it's like frosted Mm. glass so you're like oh I'm expecting someone I'll just open the door and then it's too late Mm. so it's it's yeah okay yeah no I get you so do you know how I said this case was close to Christmas on Christmas day 2010 a couple were walking their dog along Longwood Lane which is near a golf course next to the entrance of a quarry which is in like fail land about three miles from where Joanna lived when they found a body in the snow. This body was declared by police as that of Joanna Yates. So her deceased body was found on Christmas Day by a couple walking their dog on Christmas Day morning and her parents and partner to be told that she had died on Christmas Day. Which is just Rough. horrific. Mm-hmm. So horrific. Gets worse. A post-mortem examination began on the 26th of December, so Boxing Day. Um, so results were delayed due to the frozen condition of the body. So she basically had to be defrosted because her body was that cold because it had been snowing. It was quite a heavy snow that winter. I know not everyone I was going to say the winter of 2010. That was actually yeah. a mad winter. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was. Oh, so it was the winter of 2010. Yeah. So even obviously we were up in Scotland, but even in England and Bristol, they had it really bad as well. Um, so, yeah, it was that horrific. She was found in snow and they don't know how long she'd been there at this point. Even if she was only there overnight, you're going to you're gonna freeze, you know. Um, I know, as I said, not everyone celebrates Christmas. I totally respect that. But working those shifts as CID or police, somebody surely celebrated Christmas and trying to work that murder crime on Christmas Day and then on Boxing Day and for her family. I know it's, I know it's that stereotypical thing, but at that time of year, it's always just so much worse. Like if you celebrate that, everyone's celebrating being with their family and your family's going through this horrific bereavement. Now, police actually initially think that it's possible she froze to death because her body showed no visible signs of injury. So they're thinking that maybe she was actually just dumped there. The pathologist who performed her autopsy actually determined she died of a result of strangulation. The post-mortem indicated that she had died several days before being discovered and it also confirmed that Joanna did not eat the pizza she had bought at Tesco. So that wasn't in her stomach, obviously. Now, Detective Chief Inspector um, Jones, who is one of the main guys that works on this, um, said that the investigation found, quote, no evidence to suggest that Joanna was sexually assaulted. So that is kind of one of the main things that you're probably thinking is this maybe a sexually motivated crime. That was completely ruled out. Investigators announced on the 20th of December that the case has now become a murder inquiry. So obviously she didn't have any visible signs of injury, but the strangulation and actually if she's been dumped quite soon after her strangulation, the body's probably froze, which hasn't given the body time to have marks, which is crazy. Now, both Greg and her family visited the site of the discovery on the 27th of December. Her dad, David, said that the family had been told to prepare for the worst and they actually expressed relief that her body had been found, which sounds horrific, but actually the thought of somebody being missing, like the thought of you or like my sister ever going missing and never knowing what happened to them, I think is absolutely horrendous. So actually they were quite grateful to have a body. Does that make sense? I know obviously they're not grateful to die, but they were grateful to actually have her body. Complete sense, absolutely. I agree. So the pathologist, whose name was Nat Carey, um, consented to the release of her body on the 31st of January 2011. Um, So because the funeral arrangements were actually delayed as investigators had to retain the body. So it was actually a whole month 
um, that they had to kind of delay for. Um, so I just think, you know, if someone dies, you kind of want to get that over and done with. But to have to wait a month, I get it. I totally get it. That's why I'm going to stall my words. I do get it. But that must make it worse for the family. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anyway. So following the discovery of her body, detectives from the Avon and Somerset Constabulary issued an appeal for anyone with information about the death to come forward and investigate um, like similar like cases. So they basically started investigating similarities with other unsolved cases because what they're thinking is, right, OK, did she actually make it home? Maybe like an old decider's got home. So has she maybe gone back out and this has been like an abduction in the street? Maybe there's like a serial killer going around this time. But that was not a link. There was a couple of cases, though, that did link in that were unsolved. So I'm going to just tell you a couple of them that they thought, actually, that's quite like that case. So there was one that was a girl called 20-year-old Glenis Carruthers. Now, she was strangled in 1974. Now, Claudia Lawrence also went missing in 2009. She was 35. So there was kinds of, like, links with those two. But there was also... Um, Melanie Hall, who was 25, she disappeared in 1996 and her body was discovered 13 years later. Now, investigators identified, quote, striking similarities between the cases as, yeah, their ages and appearance were all different, but they had disappeared after returning home from meeting friends and they were like, okay, maybe this is actually all things. However, it was later downplayed. So that's a kind of boring side note, but I get that police probably try and think like, People don't die often, especially like abductions or murders. So they are probably trying to think, right, okay, maybe this is the act of somebody else. But I think they were definitely grasping at straws if you're talking about people that died in 1974. That that sounds really terrible. Claudia Lawrence, I actually do kind of think, okay, because that was 2009 when she went missing. But 74 and even 96, I think, were maybe grasping at straws a wee bit. That's just me. Now, investigators started gathering surveillance videos from the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which basically forms part of the most direct route from the crime scene to the Clifton suburb where she was last seen alive. The footage was quite poor quality, so made it pretty impossible to distinguish like the different individuals or car reg numbers. So they kind of were like, right, OK, this isn't ideal. Investigators were aware that the perpetrator could have actually used an alternative bridge to cross the River Avon, which was less than a mile to the south, to basically avoid CCTV coverage. So they could have easily got round it. It's not like the car was in caught. So the car was never, there was never a car identified on CCTV. The police had to unfortunately search Greg's laptop, computer and mobile phone as part of standard procedure. But very early on, and spoiler, Greg was ruled out as a suspect. He was treated as a witness. Greg had absolutely nothing to do with Joanna's murder. Now, a young woman attending a party at a neighbouring house on the night of Joanna's disappearance recalled hearing two loud screams about 9pm coming from the direction of Joanna's flat. Another neighbour who lived behind Joanna's house said that he heard a woman's voice scream, quote, help me, although he couldn't recall exactly when the incident had happened. Why wouldn't you do something? <laughs> this is where I think I get really annoyed and I don't know if you're the same if I was in bed or whatever and I heard someone being like help me would you not phone the police well yes and no because it always depends because you like I'd <gasps> because like half the time it's a group of youths in my bit being fucking annoying you live in the scheme screaming and shouting <laughs> on the edge I'll have to <laughs> but like but, would you not if you hear someone like a woman shouting like help me 
you know what it just depends I've heard a lot of screaming and half the time I'm like what was that or I didn't catch what it was saying or useless I'm don't useless. get killed near Samantha's house no don't she do it will not because help I can't you. hear you yeah so, she's not yeah. helpful great so officers removed the front door to Joanna's flat and checked for clothing fibres DNA evidence and they actually then investigated the theory, which makes me feel sick saying it, that there was a possibility that the perpetrator had already entered her flat before she returned home. So, like, imagine oh, someone waiting in your yeah. house, basically waiting for you to come home. She's, like, come in, had a cider, been, like, faffing about, and then they've, like, jumped it. Oh, it makes me go, like... Oh. That now, is a fear of mine. Like, that is a fear, yeah. I, yeah, I always check every... I'm glad I don't own a mansion because I check like every room. Oh yeah, I would absolutely hate that. Like, like do you know if you like, or if even you're sitting downstairs and you hear a noise upstairs, and you're like, this is it. <laughs> now, yeah. senior officers from the investigation asked for assistance from the NPIA, which is the National Policing Improvement Agency, which provides expertise for difficult cases. On the 4th of January 2011, a, clin- a clinical forensic psychologist who had previously been involved as a criminal profiler in other high-profile murder cases joined the investigation as well to help narrow down the number of potential suspects. Now, the officers had established over a thousand lines of inquiry, so this is quite a busy investigation and you really need to start lowering that down. On the 5th of January, Detective Chief Inspector Jones announced that one of Joanna's socks was missing when she was found dead and that it hadn't been found near the crime scene or at her home. Police launched a national advertising campaign to appeal for witnesses through Facebook. The page, which was established on the 4th of January, was viewed nearly a quarter of a million times by the following day, while CCTV footage of Joanna had been viewed 120,000 times on YouTube. I actually remember... The footage, you probably, I don't know if you do, Samantha, but like we were obviously quite young at the time, but I remember the footage of her like at Christmas time. It was going about, she was going into the shops, like the CCTV of her. I remember it, I don't know if you do, um, but we could put, probably not. Fair enough. We could put a video of it or um, a picture of it at least on our Instagram to see it because you probably will recognise it. So on the 9th of January 2011, Bristol East MP Kerry McCarthy gave support to the idea of a public DNA screening process if the police found it useful. So the Avon and Somerset Constabulary actually conducted a mass DNA screening during the 1995 investigation into the disappearance of Louise Smith. So they suggested that they do the screening process again, and this should be extended beyond Clifton to the wider Bristol area. Do you know what a DNA screening is, Sam? Is that like a common thing or do I need to explain it? Um, is it not when you just go give your samples? Yeah, so they would yeah. ask for like, all men or all women or whoever like the kind of profile for category was. The World's End Murders. <laughs> First ever one. Yeah. So yeah, basically there'll be like a town hall set up and you just go give your DNA so it means you can be ruled out. So sometimes if it is like a mass screening, everyone in the constabulary that's like a registered to address, will it's mandatory to go and do it. And if you refuse, you just either look like an arsehole or you're guilty. So... So DNA had found uh, the DNA that was found on Joanna's body was tested for a potential profile, but there was absolutely no match and nothing came from the DNA screening either. Detectives also began tracking the movements of several hundred registered sex offenders living within that jurisdiction um, and determined where their whereabouts were on the 17th of December. However, this was also nothing came from this. So they start thinking back to the theory of was somebody in her house when she got home? So who had access to the flat? Well, obviously, Greg had keys, but her landlord, Christopher Jeffries, actually lived in the same building. 
Now, he had been really helpful towards the police at the start of the building. He was interviewed by them, gave them all this information. He then phoned them up with more detail. And he was really, really helpful. He said that that morning he was helping Greg fix his car and Greg had told him that he was going away and that Joanna was a bit worried about it. So he knows all this information. He's really helpful in the investigation, which does set off alarm bells for some people. So it's shortly after 7am on the 30th of December, Christopher Jeffries was arrested on suspicion of murder. He was taken to a local police station for questioning while forensic investigators inspected his flat. On Hogmanay, so the 31st of December, a senior police officer granted investigators a 12-hour extension to the arrest, enabling them to hold him in custody for additional questioning. Police then applied to magistrates for full further extensions, and they were granted on the 31st and 1st of January. So he ended up spending the whole of Hogmanay and New Year in jail. Now, bear in mind, he hasn't been found guilty of anything. Hmm. I started I've choking. Been like, oh. I was sorry. That's why. So that you didn't. That's why you took. I didn't know if you heard my voice going, but I started choking. It's fine. I'll cut it out. I'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Investigators were able to detain him as a suspect for up to ninety-six hours, but they released him on bail after two days. He retained the legal services of the law firm. Stokel partnership to act on his behalf if he is innocent and no spoilers Why that they, would... did they keep them for 96 hours <clears throat> they obviously had something on him oh exactly that's i'm like mental because well, i get the whole witness, 24, 48 oh. yeah totally but 96 hours especially over christmas and new year i don't know like obviously i don't work for the police but i don't know if it's like a staffing issue yeah, maybe they were like, oh, you know, like do they conduct? Holidays, do <laughs> I'm doing the day. I don't know mm-hmm. if they conduct interviews at this time. I don't blame them if they don't. There. So, a witness, Vincent Tabak, who was actually a neighbour, watched the news broadcast about the case while he was over in the Netherlands visiting relatives for New Year. He then phones up Avon and Somerset Police to tell them that he had saw Christopher Jeffries using his car on the night night of the 17th of December. So they actually sent CID officer DC Karen Thomas to Amsterdam to talk to him. Now they met at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport on the 31st of December. And this is where Vincent Bat's quite o- like, o- open. He elaborates on his story and he kind of says like, yeah, because obviously Christopher Jeffrey said he didn't use his car, whereas he's saying his car was parked this way. I saw him go out and I saw him come back and park it differently. The police were a bit like, mm, bit weird because he was really interested in like what was happening with the case the forensic work but they were like okay he's obviously that's a good kind of person to give a statement on the 4th of march 2011 police released christopher jeffries from bail and stated he was no longer a suspect there was nothing on him apart from him moving his car which he can do if he wants to do that doesn't make you guilty he um on the 4th of march 2011 sorry um I said he was released, sorry, I'm just repeating myself. He actually then won an undisclosed sum in libel damages for defamatory... Defamation. Yes, defamatory news articles published (laughs) following his arrest. And he actually received an apology from Avon and Somerset Police for any distress caused to him during the investigation. He's actually really open and says, like, this tarnished him. Of course it did, it absolutely tarnished him because... The police and the papers are horrific at this. They released, he was guilty, they released his name, 
all this, but I'm going to come back to you about him because I'm going to kind of finish up on Christopher Jeffries now and I'll come back. Um, so, and we're going to go to January 2011 now, and a reconstruction of the case was filmed on um, a location in Bristol for broadcast in the 26th of January edition of the BBC television programme. Framework. Woo! Yes. So they actually took this really, really far, and a specialised firm from the film industry came in and was contacted to reproduce the snowy conditions for the time of Joanna's disappearance. As we said about it, it was a horrific storm, so they actually got this team in to reconstruct like her last movements, but they actually made all the snow. This was filmed on the 18th of January, and within 24 hours of the news coverage about the production, over 300 people contacted the police. So this hasn't been released. It's coming out the 26th of January, but within 24 hours of the news coverage saying we're recording this, 300 people got in touch with police with information. Now, a breakthrough led investigators to believe that Joanna's body might have been transported in a large holdall or suitcase. I don't know where that came from. I don't know where it came from. But... Just before Crime Watch aired, the police get a massive breakthrough. The DNA found on Joanna was matched. So they found a DNA match. And this was matched to Vincent Tabak. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about Vincent Tabak, but in case you've kind of zoned out or lost me already, Vincent Tabak was the man that phoned from the Netherlands saying he saw Christopher Jeffries move and he lives in the same flat block as Joanna and Greg. So Vincent de Back was born on the 10th of February in 1978 and he is a Dutch engineer who had lived and worked in the UK since 2007. He is the youngest of five siblings and was actually brought up in Uden, which is 21 miles away uh, off Eidenhoven. Now, Vincent de Back's childhood was like, his, um, it was fine. Like there was nothing like, you know, when you then get these people that are like, oh, they pull the legs of animals and stuff. His childhood was fine. And his childhood next door neighbour, John Masures, actually came forward and described him after the trial as quite an intelligent, introverted loner. He studied at Eidenhoven University of Technology um, in 1996 and he graduated in architecture. He left university in 2007 and moved to the UK after taking up a job at the headquarters of Bureau Happold, an engineering consultancy firm in Bath, and he settled in a flat in the town. He worked as a people flow analyst, which basically requires him to examine how people move around public spaces, such as schools, airports and sports stadiums, which is a very bizarre job, but hey-ho. While living in Bath, he actually got a girlfriend. Uh, he met her through uh, Guardian's online dating website, Soulmates, and they moved to the flat on the same place as Joanna and Greg in June 2009. Now, although Joanna Yates and her partner moved into the neighbouring, uh, the flat in late 2010, she, had, she and Vincent Tabak had actually never met prior to the 17th of December. On the morning of the 20th of January, the Avon and Somerset Conservatory arrest 32-year-old architect Vincent Tabak, who was living with his girlfriend in the flat next door. However, the authorities declined to reveal additional details while the suspect was being interrogated due to concerns over the controversial media coverage that Christopher Jeffries had to face, which had breached the rules governing what can be reported when an individual is arrested. They totally, sorry, they fucked up with Christopher Jeffries. As I said, I will get back to that. Following his arrest, the BBC actually cancelled its plans to air the Joanna reenactment on Crime Watch because they didn't need any more kind of information while they pursued him. DNA tests were carried out, which they basically got a private company to do it. 
Um, and the Lindsay Lennon was woman's name. She was a body fluids and DNA specialist, and she analysed the DNA, the DNA samples from Joanna's body and said that although the DNA swab was matched Vincent to back, they were not of sufficient quality to be evaluated. So that's obviously not great. However, they also said we couldn't say whether the DNA was from saliva or semen or even touch, but we could say that the probability of it not being a match with Vincent to Pack was less than one in a billion. So as much as it can't then be evaluated to find out what it is, they can say that there's one in a billion chance it's not Vincent Tabak's. So after questioning, which again, he got 96 hours of detention, Vincent Tabak was charged on the 22nd of January 2011 with the murder of Joanna Yates. He made a brief appearance in Bristol Magistrates Court on the 24th of January and was then remanded in custody. Tabak legally rep was represented by Paul Cook and he declined request to bail during the hearing the following day. He was then moved to Bristol Prison because of fears for his safety and he was actually placed under suicide watched at Long Larton Prison, which is near Evesham. Tabak's family and friends in the Netherlands started to raise funds for a court defence as he initially maintained he was not responsible for Joanna Yates' death, claiming that DNA evidence linking him had actually been fabricated by corrupt officials. However, on the 8th of February, he told a prison chaplain that he had killed her and intended to plead guilty. On the 5th of May 2011, Vincent Back pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Joanna, but denied merging her. His plea of guilty to manslaughter was actually rejected by the CPS, or the Crown Prosecution Service. And on the 20th of September, he appeared in person at a pre-trial hearing in Bristol Crown Court. The reason I say is in person is all his other, like, all his other appearances at um, court had been via video link from prison. Now, in the months leading up to Joanna's death, uh, Vincent Tabak had used his computer to research escort agencies and during business trips to the United Kingdom and United States, he actually contacted several sex workers by phone. Now, he had a girlfriend, but like, apart from that, fine. If you want to contact like sex worker agencies, that is totally okay. But you have a girlfriend. Don't do that. He also Arsenal. viewed, yeah, he also viewed violent internet pornog uh, pornography that basically showed women being controlled by men, showed images of them being bound and gagged, held by the neck and choked. During the murder investigation, police found images of women who bore a striking resemblance to Joanna. In one scene, he was actually shown that this person was shown like pulling up a pink top to expose like her bra and breasts. And when Joanna was discovered, she was wearing a similar pink top. Now, the trial of Vincent Back starts on the 4th of October 2011 at the Crown Court in Bristol before Mr Justice Field and obviously a jury. His counsel in the trial was William Clegg. Whose brother's that? Is it Nick Clegg? It is! Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So Vincent Back pleaded guilty to manslaughter but denied murder. So... What do we mean here, manslaughter? Because when I was investigating this case, I wasn't investigating, researching. I did not work on the case. Um, when I was researching, <laughs> I like to think I'm investigating. When I researched the case, I was obviously very confused because I'm aware that you can plead guilty to manslaughter, but I don't understand how, like, where this story kind of came from. If he said he didn't kill her, now it's manslaughter. So in his defence, he claimed that killing her had obviously not been sexually motivated. He claimed that Joanna had made a, quote, flirty comment and invited him in to have a drink in her flat. He told the court that he tried to kiss her and she starts screaming. So he then kills her while trying to silence her. He said that after she screamed, he held his hands over her mouth and around her neck to silence her. 
He denied suggestions of a struggle, claiming to have held her by the neck with minimal force and for about, quote, 20 seconds. He told the court that after dumping the body, he was in a state of panic. Now, the prosecution case said that Tobacco strangled Joanna at her flat within minutes of arrival at her home, using, quote, sufficient force to kill her. The prosecution also stated that Tobacco was around a foot or 30 centimetres taller than Joanna and had used this height to build and overpower her, pinning her to the floor by her wrists. And she actually suffered 43 separate injuries to her head, neck, torso and arms during the struggle. These injuries included cuts, bruises and a fractured nose. So, that, do you know what I mean? Like, how is that a quick, like, sh- like don't scream kind of thing? That it's is not a, quick at all. No, exactly. The court were told by the prosecution that the struggle was lengthy and her death would have actually unfortunately been slow and painful. However, he didn't offer an explanation for the reasoning behind her initial attack. Like, the prosecution are like, we don't actually know why. We kind of think it's this kiss thing, but we're not sure. Evidence was presented at the trial that Tobacco then tried to conceal the crime by disposing of her body, and the court heard that DNA swabs taken from Joanna's body had provided a match with Tobacco. Samples found behind the knees of her jeans indicated she might have actually been carried, while fibres suggested that Tobacco's coat and car both suggested that Joanna had been in them, and there was DNA found there. Bloodstains were also found on a wall overlooking a quarry close to where she was found, so... They don't know how that kind of got there. The prosecution also said that Tobacco attempted to implicate um, Jeffries for the murder during the police investigation, which I said we'll go on to later. That and the kind of following days of Joanna's death, he had made internet searches for topics that included the length of time a body takes to decompose, the dates for refuse collections in the Clifton area, which, stop doing that. If he kills somebody, don't fucking Google it. Like, how... How does this always happen when they Google search things like, I've killed someone, what would I do? Like, do you know what I mean? It's just so fucking stupid. Now, the jury was sent out to deliberate on the 26th of October and returned with a verdict two days later. On the 28th of October 2011, Tobacco was found guilty of Joanna Yates' murder by a 10 to 2 majority verdict. So two people don't think he did it. He was jailed for life with a minimum of 20 years. Passing sentence, Mr Justice Field referred to a sexual element to the killing. After the trial, it then emerged that pornographic images of children had been found on Vincent Tobacco's laptop. Now, this was a couple of years later, so in December 2013, the CPS announced that they would be prosecuting him for these images. And on the 2nd of March 2015, which is quite a while, Vincent Tobacco pleaded guilty to possessing more than 100 indecent images of children and was sentenced to 10 months in prison to run concurrently with his existing life sentence to murder. Now, that's the kind of case that's where it finishes at the trial. But as I said, I wanted to go back and talk to you about the media. So following a television news report on the 4th of January, it criticised the handling of the investigation. So it basically said the police weren't doing enough. So ITN reporters were actually banned by the Avon and Somerset police from attending a press conference giving updates on the murder case. So this isn't great. And I've actually not heard of that before, which is kind of why I kind of wanted to mention it. Now, Another person, unsure who or what, but legal action was also considered over a tweet that revealed that Vincent DeBac had viewed internet pornography showing erotic association and bondage. Now, the contempt of court charges were dropped when the tweet was deleted, but this is not true. Yeah, he was a horrible guy, but that isn't true. And someone had tweeted saying this was found and kind of widespread. Now, I'm going to talk to you, as I said, about Jeffries. 
So the landlord, Jeffries, had had a lot of bad press and was quoted as a character assassination on a large scale, including the headline, this, um, including a headline, sorry, The Sun described Jeffries, a former schoolmaster at the Clifton College, as weird, posh, lewd and creepy. I hate the sun. Um, a story from the Daily Express quoted unnamed former pupils referring to him as a sort of nutty professor who made them feel, quote, creeped out by his strange behaviour. He looks different. If you Google Jeffries, he does look different. And I'm I'm not saying that he doesn't, but that's the thing. What does different mean nowadays? It means that they don't look like the kind of standard person. So yeah, he, he kind of does look like a bit of like an Einstein, if that makes sense. Like it kind of has that like white hair and kind of like, as that person says, like, sorry, but like a nutty professor look. But that doesn't make Not a you killer. A, yeah, it doesn't make you a murderer. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of annoying. So yeah, he just he just looks a bit different. Um, so yeah, fine. Uh, there was also another quote that the Clifton College people said he was a fan of dark and violent avant-garde films. Jeffrey's actually launched legal action against six newspapers in the UK. Do you want to guess them? The Sun. Correct. The Daily Mail? Yep. <laughs> the rest all have daily in it, if that helps you. The Daily Post. I don't no. know anymore. The Sun, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Star, the Daily Express, the Daily Mail and the Daily Record. And he launched legal action against all six for damages for libel, basically. It was heard that the media were quick to jump to conclusions regarding his arrest and being a retired English teacher who lived alone, whose physical appearance and eccentric kind of white hair made him stand out. It led to people, led to, people to believe he looked the type to be a murderer. Stephen Moss wrote in The Guardian, the unspoken assumption was that no one could look odd and be innocent, which is bullshit. On the 29th of July, he accepted a substantial damages for uh, defamination from the Sun, the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, the Daily Record, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Daily Star and the Scotsman in connection with their coverage of his arrest. The case was mentioned during a parliamentary debate, actually, on a private member's bill that would have imposed a sentence of six months imprisonment for any journalist who names an uncharged suspect. The proposed legislation was introduced to the House of Commons in June 2010, but it was actually withdrawn, unfortunately, which I stand by. As much as we like to know, he wasn't charged. So I think until somebody is charged, they should be kept innocent because he was just being interviewed. He was just being questioned and they already decided the media that he was guilty, which kind of went on subsequently to ruin his life. Jeffries, yeah, sorry, Jeffries gave evidence to the Leveson Inquiry, which was established by Prime Minister David Cameron to investigate the ethics and behaviour of the British media following the news of the world phone hacking drama. Jeffries said, quote, it was clear that the tabloid press had decided I was guilty of Miss Yates' murder and seemed determined to persuade the public of my guilt. They embarked on a frenzied campaign to blacken my character by publishing a series of very serious allegations about me, which were completely untrue. End quote. Before I finish up, I'm going to go back to why we're doing this case in the first place, which is, of course, Joanna Yates. Now, following the release of her body on the 31st of January 2011, the Yates family arranged to hold her funeral at St Mark's in Ampfield, which is in Hampshire, and have her basically interred in the churchyard. Joanna was buried on the 11th of February. About 300 people attended the service. Greg Reardon, the boyfriend, started a charity website in Joanna's memory to raise funds on behalf of families of missing people. 
Joanna's friends and family planted a memorial garden in the Sir Harold Hyler Gardens in Romsey, where she worked as a student. Building Designs Partnership and the local NHS Trust announced plans to commemorate her with a memorial garden that she had been designing for a new 430 million hospital in South Mead, Bristol. In 2013, ITV commissioned a drama about Jeffrey's arrest and Jason Watkins was the leading role he played, um, Jeffrey's. The Bristol Post reported... I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, Well, you know how at the start I was like, I don't know any of this. But then when you started talking about Jeffrey, I was like... Oh my goodness, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So yeah, Jeffrey's actually read and approved the script and supported the project. And the drama titled The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries aired on the 10th and 11th of December 2014. It was in two parts. In May 2015, it won two awards at the 2015 um, British Academy Television Awards. It was the best miniseries for the programme itself and the best actor of Watkins' uh, portrayal of Jeffries. This has not been released on any form of streaming service yet, which is rubbish. On the 26th of March 2015, the case was subject to an episode of the Channel 5 documentary series Counted to Murder, titled The Killer Next Door, The Last Hours of Joanna Gates. I'm aware Vincent Tabak is still in prison and when I've Googled it, there's not been much. I don't think he's got himself into any prison bother. I don't think he's done anything that I can find. So he is still in prison as far as we are aware and where he should be. And that is... The sad case of Joanna Yates, especially at this time. Sam, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, no. It's just, it's it was a wild one. And I'm glad that in the end, the right person got jailed for what they did. And, you know, because you know how it is sometimes in newspapers, blame all these people and then the innocent get jailed. But no, he's in prison now where he belongs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's good that he is there and he's not reoffended. And I think he'll end up sending life. And I think, yeah, especially at this time of year when everyone's celebrating, I really do feel for Joanna's families as it's such a horrific loss at such a sad time. But thank you all for listening and thanks for listening for the last year. Or if this is your first episode, welcome. But yeah, thank you for sticking with us the last year. Um, and we hope to have you with us in 2014. I think. When's... 2024 oh, <laughs> not 2014 what? Jesus what year am I in um, 2024 yes I don't know when's our next episode out Sam I think um, we're... so the next episode will be out on the 7th of January 2024 wow that's Mental. crazy yeah. well, so we'll that's... see you then speak to you then <laughs>